everyone, and welcome to another episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Mishu. This is the February 2022 episode, and today we are discussing the emergency department management of acute asthma exacerbations. We are lucky enough to have two guests with us. That's two of the authors from this month's emergency medicine practice issue on the treatment of asthma in the emergency department, Dr. Hockman and Dr. Samwaru. And before we get to that, I want to share some of the exciting things that we've been up to at EB Medicine. First, if you haven't been to the website, ebmedicine.net, then I encourage you to go today. There's a link for FOMED, or Free Open Access Medical Education. There you'll find our previous blog posts along with rapid reference notes and things to help you at the point of care, medical cases, algorithms, and treatment protocols all for free. So come and join the discussion. Let us know what you find helpful and what you need more of, and we'll be happy to provide it. Also, if you haven't already done so, you can download the EB Medicine app to your smartphone. It's available in the Apple Store currently and hopefully coming to the Google Store very, very soon. In that, you'll find your monthly issues. You'll find links to the free content on the website and so much more. And you'll be able to search the issues every month for the content that you're looking for while you're treating patients on shift. Also this month, EB Medicine launched a new product, evidence-based urgent care education. So if you're working in an urgent care center and need continuing medical education and information specific to your practice, that is now also available at ebmedicine.net forward slash urgent care. So many new developments I could go on and on, all available at ebmedicine.net. I highly encourage you to go and check it all out. And now we're going to go join Dr. Stephen Hockman and Dr. Brandon Samwaru as they tell us more about managing asthma in the emergency department. Hi, I'm Stephen Hockman. I'm a clinical assistant professor in emergency medicine at uh, St. Joseph's University Medical Center in Patterson, New Jersey. I'm also a core faculty and the research director for the emergency medicine program. Hi, everyone. My name is Brandon Sumoru. I am one of the PGY3 chief residents at St. Joseph's University Medical Center in Patterson, New Jersey, and a future critical care fellow at the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Very happy to be here. Awesome. Future critical care fellow. Congratulations. Why, thank you. I'm excited. Thanks to both of you for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, This month's issue is actually authored by both of you and two others, so four authors on the emergency department management of acute asthma exacerbations. I really appreciate both of you making time to talk to us and all of our listeners. Let's dive into why asthma. We see a lot of asthma in the emergency department, but how bad is it? How much do we see? Well, asthma is a very common respiratory disorder. It affects over 25 million people just in the United States and over 350 million people worldwide. And approximately 3,500 people each year die in the United States. And that number is actually closer to a half a million worldwide. But here's the thing. Asthma doesn't affect all patients equally. In adults, we know that women, minority groups like black and brown people, as well as um, individuals from lower socioeconomic statuses, are all at risk for increased morbidity and mortality. 
And unfortunately, at least here in the United States, those risk factors often coalesce and lead to unequal impacts for certain populations. Yeah, and those are risk factors for death from asthma. So we're not just talking about severe disease or frequent visits to the emergency department. We're talking about this disease resulting in death for a patient. That's that's quite alarming. I did not realize it was that many deaths just in the United States alone on an annual basis. That's why this is such an important discussion to have, I think. And when we're talking about asthma, there is uh, a table actually of common triggers and variants of asthma that is in the publication. That's table two. Tell me more about that. I actually wasn't familiar with variants of asthma. In my mind, it was categorized more by multiple triggers for the same disease process, but this is quite interesting. Tell me more about the variants of the disease. Absolutely. So there are a bunch of different variants. They include allergic asthma, non-allergic asthma, occupational asthma, exercise-induced asthma, cough variant asthma, aspirin-associated asthma, and the list goes on and on and on. But each variant has its own specific trigger. So we know certain allergens lead to an IgE-mediated response for allergic asthma, whereas vigorous exercise, especially in cold and dry environments, can lead to exercise-induced asthma. So it's not just one disease, really. It's there's a bunch of different variables that go into it. I would say, having said that, there, in the pulmonary literature, there are all of these variants of asthma have been identified. I think, though, the problem for us in the emergency department is that we're not going to have that information. So for the most part, when we talk about the evaluation and treatment in the emergency department, it's going to be fairly constant depending on the level of severity that's presented to us. It's good to know the background for the patients, what might have triggered their asthma and what kind of history they have. But for a large part, the treatment is going to be pretty much the same for most of these variants in the emergency department. That's an excellent point. Thank you for mentioning that. The, the differential for this disease is also quite extensive. So we know in the emergency department that not all shortness of breath is asthma. But once again, the differential has exceeded most things that I think about when we approach somebody who's typically wheezing or short of breath. Tell me more about the kinds of things we should be keeping in mind when we're treating someone who we think is probably asthmatic. Yeah, like everything in emergency medicine, I think it's really important to have a broad differential, especially when you're seeing a patient with undifferentiated dyspnea. So other things that can be going on include congestive heart failure, COPD, pneumonia, including COVID-19 pneumonia, and pulmonary embolism, among a long list of other pathologies. Yeah, and pulmonary embolism was one, well, I shouldn't say that in this particular issue sticks out. It always sticks out for me. There is a quote here in the paper. It says, a large case control study showed that severe asthma exacerbations and chronic oral corticosteroid use were independent risk factors for pulmonary embolism. So when I'm going through my Wells criteria or trying to figure out if someone is, uh, has multiple risk factors for PE, I'm not typically asking them if they have had multiple severe asthma exacerbations or if they're on an oral corticosteroid. Where does that fit into my decision-making process in the ED? Well, we actually know that about 20% of patients with acute asthma exacerbations who underwent diagnostic imaging in one study had evidence of acute pulmonary embolism. However, and I want to make this very clear because I feel like it's very important, 
The clinical significance of incidental pulmonary embolism in asthmatics is very unclear. And we also know that there are real risks associated with overtesting. So I think we need to think seriously about the symptoms that brought the patient to the emergency department. And in the absence of other signs or symptoms that are concerning for PE, physicians most likely do not need to work up every asthmatic for pulmonary embolism. Yeah, and I think also the point to keep in mind here, like with everything else in emergency medicine, is to keep a broad differential, like Brandon mentioned before, and to avoid anchoring. We tend to see a patient in respiratory distress coming into the emergency department, and we slot them into one or two or three different diagnoses. And it's important to just take a step back, consider the patient's history, their presentation, their exam, while you're treating them at the same time, and maintain a broad differential until you really focus in on, on what it is that's going on with the patient. Good. So if I'm treating an asthmatic who tells me, or maybe who says after I specifically ask that this is different than their usual asthma exacerbation, and now they're having, say, pleuritic chest pain when they don't have a history of that with prior episodes, then this increased risk of PE might be something that becomes relevant all of a sudden in the evaluation of that particular patient, as opposed to just every single asthmatic that I see who comes in saying, I'm short of breath, I ran out of my medication, or I've been off of my corticosteroids, or I haven't had access to my primary care doctor for a while and I was outside running, or something of that sort. Absolutely. Sure. All right, good. For our pre-hospital colleagues, if they're getting called to see somebody who's asthmatic uh, and they're responsible for that initial evaluation and transport, is there anything new or anything specific we would like them to focus on as they're bringing someone into the emergency department? You know, we found that pre-hospital treatment varies widely, and it's based on a lot of different things, provider training, resources, transport time and local regulations, which actually vary widely from state to state and even municipality to municipality. We do know that steroids have a delayed onset of action, but can lower hospital admission rates, according to a pretty large Cochrane review. So I think it may be beneficial to administer these medications pre-hospital if available, because it may impact disposition at the end of their emergency department visit. Yeah, I think that we found that the EMS protocols varied very, very widely from locality to locality. Some places may only have access to oxygen plus um, short-acting beta agonists. Others, like, like our EMS system, we can, over the box, we can ask for albuterol, atrovent, so SABAs, anticholinergics, steroids, MAG, sometimes IMEPI, <laughs> everything up to intubation. So it really varies widely. But we also found that there really wasn't the literature in pre-hospital care was really not very extensive. So there really, we didn't really have a whole lot of data to base any recommendations on. And the, the pre-hospital care, I assume, also varies pretty widely based on the setting. If you're in an urban setting or a severely rural setting where transport time could be an hour, then hopefully that particular transport truck has significantly more resources available to them so they can actually begin therapy for that long transport time. Yes, very, very different. In our setting, in an urban setting, our patients get to us within five to 10 minutes for the most part. And I'm sure in many parts of the country, those transport times are, could be closer to an hour. So it's very different the treatment that you hope to get in the pre-hospital setting. 
Okay, good. And then when they arrive in the emergency department and we're starting to engage with them and obtain a history, of course, they're short of breath. So some of this is going to be limited, but what kinds of key things should we be focusing on when we're interviewing the patient? So I would start off by asking when symptoms started, um, asking whether or not they're compliant with their medication regimen. If they have a known history of asthma and have been prescribed different medications for it. Um, also asking, have they been hospitalized? Have they been intubated? Have they visited the emergency department recently? Again, we know that these are all risk factors for severe disease and death. So finding the answers to those questions could specifically help you stratify the their disease in particular. Good. And then when we move on to the physical exam, specifically, what are we looking for there? So I think it's important to first gauge their level of respiratory distress. For instance, is the patient tachypnic? Are they using accessory muscles? What's their mental status like? Remember that asthma is mostly a clinical diagnosis. So these findings, they'll help gauge the severity of their exacerbation and then eventually help guide your treatment. So we expect wheezing, obviously, but that's different between mild exacerbations, moderate exacerbations, and severe exacerbations. So in mild exacerbations, the wheezing might be mild or even very subtle. Vital signs are usually normal and O2 saturations are usually well above 95%. That changes uh, with moderate and severe um, exacerbations. In moderate exacerbations, you have increased accessory muscle use. Patients may only be speaking to you in short phrases and they might be mildly hypoxic with an O2 saturation, you know, greater than 90%. But the most concerning patients are those who are in severe respiratory distress. I mean, they are tachycardic, they are tachypnic, they are using all of their accessory muscles. They might even be agitated or altered with O2 saturations well below 90%. And I think that we always expect to hear wheezing when we listen to an asthmatic. But if you auscultate your patient's lungs and they have either decreased air entry or no wheezing at all, that's really, really concerning because a silent chest may indicate impending respiratory failure, which, which needs to obviously be managed pretty aggressively. Yeah, so wheezing is premised, is, is basically created, the sound that's created by air moving through constricted airways, right? So if their airways are so severely constricted that they're not getting much air movement, you may not hear any wheezing. And like Brandon says, that can be a very ominous sign and something that is counterintuitive, but We'll learn the hard way during residency, hopefully. And with that being said, just to highlight the importance of having a broad differential, you also want to be looking for other physical exam findings. For instance, do you hear crackles? Is there peripheral edema? These findings might point you towards a, a different or concomitant disease process. Now, you mentioned the categorization there of the mild, moderate, and severe exacerbation. Is that more of a mental model to help gauge how... Um, intense your treatment is going to be in the emergency department, or does that portend some risks for ultimate outcome, deaths or hospitalization? Probably both. I think that the, I think for those of us treating asthmatic, we all have a kind of an algorithm that we'll follow and probably we'll, we'll discuss that in a bit. But for me, when I see a mild versus a moderate versus a severe asthmatic, it gives me idea sort of the trajectory of where this patient is going. Is there going to be, are they likely going to be admitted? How much treatment are they going to need? Am I going to need to progress from first to second to third line medications? 
how closely am I going to keep an eye on this patient? We all treat a very, very mild asthmatic that's just going to get one or two nebulizer treatments very differently from the severe asthmatic that's hypoxic, using uh, accessory muscles, maybe diaphoretic, and looks a whole lot different than your mild asthmatic. Okay. And then as we move through physical exam and onto diagnostic testing, uh, we're always ordering labs on people in the emergency department. Is there anything that we should routinely be getting for our asthmatic patients? You really don't need labs. ABGs are not recommended routinely, and neither are chest x-rays. I think a better resource, to be honest with you, would be a point-of-care ultrasound. I think that can really help you differentiate people who are presenting with dyspnea. Classic findings on ultrasound include an anterior profile without posterior lateral alveolar pleural findings, or in other words, a normal ultrasound without any other positive findings such as beelines or pleural abnormalities that would suggest a different disease process. And I think that is most likely going to be your most helpful tool that you can bring directly to the bedside, as opposed to labs and other invasive procedures that are not that high yield. Yeah, we go through this uh, in some detail in the paper. For an asthmatic or a presumed asthmatic that comes into the emergency department, routine labs, routine imaging, and lots of other routine studies that we do in the emergency department really aren't indicated. If you're looking for something else, like, for instance, you suspect this could be pneumonia based on the history, based on the presentation, a chest x-ray may be useful. An ultrasound may be even more useful. Lab testing, if you suspect that there's cardiac disease going on, that may be useful. An EKG might be useful for an older patient who has a history of cardiac disease with a, a different kind of a presentation. But none of these things are really routinely indicated for a presumed asthmatic who comes into the emergency department. And there are some great images on page seven of the paper. This is figures one, two, and three, looking at typical ultrasound findings, and then even a protocol for how to approach a patient with ultrasound who's an asthmatic. So if you have access to that, I highly recommend you look at both pages seven and eight, lots of images there. That's a very, very helpful resource. What about end tidal CO2 monitoring? Now you mentioned this in the paper as well. Tell me more about the utility of that in this population. Yeah, end-tidal CO2 can help identify patients who are retaining carbon dioxide, similar to how we use it during procedural sedation. However, the waveform can actually provide some diagnostic information too. So patients who are presenting with an acute asthma exacerbation usually have waveforms that resemble a shark fin. So to a certain extent, you can use that tracing to gauge the diagnosis, but then also how well your treatments are working. So as that patient is improving, that shark fin is going to change its shape and start looking more like a normal capnograph waveform? It could, um, but it's also important to remember that your end-tidal CO2 gives you your lowest possible PCO2. Patients can certainly be retaining a lot more carbon dioxide than what your end-tidal is suggesting. So just using it as one tool in the, the many tools that you have available. Gotcha. And for those who don't have access to capnography and maybe just have capnometry, the, the non-invasive type, is there really any utility in that? So that would be just a number, not really a waveform. I would answer that question. Yeah, capnometry that gives you a number, a, an entitled CO2. I, I suppose that number is useful in evaluating how severe uh, 
your patient is and how well they're responding to treatment. If the patient is retaining CO2, becoming altered, not oxygenating well, not looking well, continues to use accessory muscles, not moving much more air, I think that could contribute to your clinical picture in terms of what your next steps might be. That's very helpful. And then no discussion about asthma really would be complete if we didn't talk about peak expiratory flow. So useful in the ED, when do we use it? The beginning, the end, not at all. Tell me. Okay, I think that's mine. Peak expiratory flow is something that actually I trained in residency. I finished residency 18 years ago, and I was always taught that your peak expiratory flow was your most useful bedside test in assessing how severe the asthmatic was and how well uh, the how effective the treatment has been, and in and used use also as a predictive uh, tool to determine how well they're going to do if they're discharged or who needs to be admitted. I think that has really been called into question. There was a study actually in 1999, which was before I finished residency, that showed that the peak expiratory flow did not, was not particularly predictive on how well asthmatics did and what their ultimate uh, disposition would be. ASEP in their clinical guidelines, I believe in 2019, recommends peak expiratory flow really to be used in particular patients based on particular criteria, but not really to be used in general for every single asthmatic. So I think we're a lot more selective in the way we use peak expiratory flow now. And as a, a younger resident who's still in the midst of training, uh, peak flows are something I'm not familiar with at all. So it's interesting to see sort of how things change with time and even more of a reason why these evidence-based medicine issues are so important because things do change. I think the other thing is that, just to add to that, is that a peak flow is I think most patients get a, a little peak flow meter from their, their pulmonologist or from their general doctor to be used at home, really to assess themselves to see how significant their exacerbation may be on a given day and when they really need to come in. So it's probably, and I'm not sure if it's been studied, but it's probably more useful in that setting than it is in the ED setting. Yeah, that is a practice change, I think, in the last decade or so, and that's very helpful. Now, if we move to treatment, there is a very large table on page 13 of the paper that includes all of the treatments for patients with asthma. So let's walk through these real quick, starting with basic oxygen therapy for someone who's hypoxic, but if they're not hypoxic, I'm assuming we follow the standard for all other patients and we're not giving them oxygen? I think we should be. I think probably in practice, most asthmatics, at least pre-hospital, up until the time when they arrive in the emergency department, are getting oxygen. But agreed, we don't need to super-oxygenate these people. And we know that hypoxia can actually have deleterious effects. So your goal, according to the GINA guidelines, are an SpO2 between 93 and 95% for most adults. Good. And then beta agonists. So we have short and some patients who might be on long-acting beta agonists. Any role for the long-acting version in the acute phase in the emergency department? No, not really. The mainstay of asthma treatment in the emergency department setting are short-acting beta agonists, anticholinergics, and systemic corticosteroids. So long-acting beta agonists are really medications that patients may be on they're often combined with inhaled steroids, which patients may be on chronically long-term at home. But in the emergency department setting, we really focus on using uh, short-acting beta agonists. So that's really the mainstay of treatment. And the main effect really of short-acting beta agonists is bronchodilation. 
of course. Now, the second mainstay of treatment, first-line treatment, is anticholinergics. Typically, we use, in this country, we use epitropium, and we combine that in a nebulizer, usually, with short-acting beta agonists. And what anticholinergics do is they provide some smooth muscle relaxation, some bronchodilation, and also decrease airway secretions. The third part of the mainstay of treatment are systemic corticosteroids. Uh, the efficacy of oral uh, corticosteroids like prednisone versus IV corticosteroids like solumedrol is pretty much the same. Although in the emergency department setting, since most of these patients are going to get an IV and may get other medications, we usually give those intravenously. And those are the three mainstays of treatment for probably 99% of the asthmatics that come to the emergency department. Good. And now these medications typically come in a variety of delivery methods. So you already touched on steroids available as IV or oral or inhaled for some outpatient therapies. But the albuterol specifically can come in a nebulizer treatment, can come in a MDI or a meter dose inhaler, or some people will put two or three of these and run them continuously. So what's the ideal method of approaching how much and the delivery type? I think there have been a number of studies, particularly a Cochrane review some years back that analyzed the efficacy of nebulized beta agonist therapy as opposed to uh, beta agonist delivered by a meter dose inhaler, MDI. And I think the, this, the evidence has been that the efficacy are pretty much the same. With kids, I think also the efficacy of MDIs were similar to nebulized. Uh, I think we typically use nebulized beta agonists in the emergency department for a number of reasons. You can actually leave them on that therapy for a period of time. We usually, for severe asthmatic, we're going to give them an hour-long or two-hour-long treatments. The other thing may be that patient's technique may not be optimal, so that they may not get the optimal delivery of the medication through an MDI. But I think the studies have shown that they are relatively equivalent. I also think that MDIs can be important especially nowadays, uh, given our current health care climate with COVID-19 um, being such a big part of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. We know that the risk of transmission for many respiratory pathogens appears to be greater with the use of a nebulizer. So that might be another reason why an MDI would be beneficial. Good. And then on the topic of steroids, we mentioned IV or oral prednisone or solumedrol, uh, methylprednisolone versus dexamethasone. Any preference for one over the other? Yeah, well, there have been a, a number of studies comparing oral dexamethasone with the typical sort of standard five days of prednisone treatment that we give patients. So most patients that are treated for asthma in the emergency department are usually sent home with a course of steroids for usually two to 10 days, but generally about five days. And what we've typically used in the past is prednisone or prednisolone for kids. A number of studies, both in the pediatric and the adult literature recently, have shown that either one or two doses of dexamethasone, one in the department and then one 24 to 48 hours later, has an equal efficacy to the five-day course of prednisone or prednisolone. And advantages of that are significant in terms of the compliance, because if you give one dose in the department, you control that, and the patient just has to fill one more one prescription for one more dose 24 to 48 hours later, the compliance, although I don't know if that's been studied specifically, is likely to be significantly better than asking a patient to take two pills a day for the next five days. 
So there have been several studies, both in the pediatric and the adult literature, that show equal efficacy to the two approaches. And I think probably that's going forward, that's going to be, I think, a, a good method of doing that. Again, because I think it's easier for the patients. And if the efficacy is equal, then why not do it? Yeah. I'll tell you, in the unpublished Samishu household study of three children <laughs> who have each had to take preloan at one point or another, the bitterness of unflavored preloan is terrible. Yes. And given the option of a daily dose for five days versus just a single follow-up dose of dexamethasone, we will choose the single dose any day of the week. It is far, far easier to administer than the repetitive agony of giving your child something that tastes horrible on a daily basis. <laughs> yes. And let me add some data to your study, which is that they did also find that the rate of vomiting with dexamethasone was lower than that of preloan or prednisolone. So take that home. All the more reason. <laughs> I look forward to the next dose of dexamethasone. <laughs> so for the severe cases or the severe asthmatic, we've got some other medications to consider as well. Magnesium sulfate being a good starting point there. So the evidence for magnesium sulfate is still good. Is that right? It is. But I think it's a little bit what we found in, the, in researching the paper was that magnesium is really indicated. It should be considered a second line treatment. Okay after those first three treatments have probably not completely resolved the symptoms. So it's a second-line treatment, and it is really indicated for moderate to severe asthma. I know in our department, we tend to, any asthmatic almost that comes in is going to, or very often is going to wind up with two grams of mag IV in addition to their nebulizer and their steroids. But really, the, the literature for magnesium is very good, but is really good for moderate to severe asthma, both in adults and kids. And then epinephrine, so something I'm not commonly giving asthmatics, but is very important in the very uh, severe cases. Very important, and yes, in the severe cases. Again, I would probably consider epinephrine a third-line treatment after the first uh, two kind of levels of treatment are not uh, producing results. Epinephrine is a potent uh, beta-2 and alpha-1 agonist. It gives you some bronchodilation, decreased mucus production decrease airway edema, decrease inflammation. And it is recommended, when we read the literature, it was recommended throughout the literature in most every algorithm that we read for treating asthma. However, when you look at the level of evidence for epinephrine, unfortunately, it really isn't there. The, weak, the evidence for it is really very weak, very disparate. There was a good meta-analysis in just last year, 2021, by Bagot et al., which combined 38 studies, over 2,000 patients, and compared epinephrine versus selective beta-2 agonists. And they really found no difference in the results or in their endpoints for the two treatments. And also the evidence was just really all over the place. But by any route, epinephrine, whether it's IM, whether it's sub-Q, whether it's given IV, as opposed to selective beta-2 agonists, there really wasn't the evidence to support it. Having said that, I would think all of us in the room and most clinicians and virtually every review article that we read recommended epinephrine for severe asthma. There were, I will say, several safety studies, three or four safety studies that we reported on in the paper, which showed that the safety profile for epinephrine was very, very, the side effects were minimal. There was seen some transient tachycardia, some transient hypertension, but also, but, but again, very, very safe. 
So in the end, we recommended in the paper that epinephrine be considered in severe asthmatics, either IM 0.3 to 0.5 uh, milligrams, or even IV in a severe, perhaps hypotensive asthmatic at 5 to 20 micrograms IVQ 2 to 5 minutes. And when you're going through this mental algorithm and you're approaching somebody who's severely asthmatic, so you've started with your continuous NABs, they've gotten the ipratropium, you've given the steroids, uh, you've watched them and they're not improving or perhaps even deteriorating, are you preferentially then going to magnesium sulfate first or would you consider mag sulfate and epinephrine simultaneously? Is there necessary necessarily an order to these two medications? I'm not sure there's necessarily an order. I, I think everyone has their own sort of uh, practice pattern. Myself, I generally will go to magnesium first and then kind of watch the patient a little bit, see how they're doing, and then probably consider mag after that. Others may reverse those. I also think that we typically, we know that magnesium sulfate and epinephrine are safe medications for the most part. And we know that there are a lot of issues with intubating severe asthmatics. So when treating these patients, we tend to treat them aggressively, or we tend, we recommended that we treat these patients aggressively to avoid intubation, which we know is a lot more dangerous than some of the other medications we might be giving. And then tell me about terbutaline, something that is still an option even today. Is that right? What we found was that there was very limited evidence for, for terbutaline. Most of the evidence is in kids in the, the pediatric population. When I trained in residency, we kind of used terbutaline probably more than we used epi. And now mm. I think probably most physicians would probably reverse those, more would use epi. And I think probably that's a function of the, we, rightly or wrongly, we used to think that epi was a little bit of a risky drug. And now I think that the data is there showing the safety of epinephrine. So I think that's probably used preferentially over tributylene. Good. And then ketamine. So ketamine is popular for lots of things, but also has a role for our asthmatic patient. Tell me how it's going to help my critically sick asthmatic. Ketamine, I think, is a, again, is a, a, a medication that's come into vogue for a number of indications, I would say, in the last 10 years or so. It's a good induction agent. If you, unfortunately, if you have to intubate an asthmatic, it probably makes sense to use ketamine as an induction agent because it does provide some bronchodilation. There is some mixed and limited evidence for using ketamine in uh, status asthmaticus for patients that, again, are not responding to first, second line therapies. Um, the dose is a little bit all over the place in the various studies, but what we found was that a, a bolus of 0.2 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, and then a infusion of 4.4 .4 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per hour for maybe up to two hours, which are both sub-dissociative doses of ketamine could aid in bronchodilation for a relatively stable asthmatic. This is not an asthmatic that is peri-intubation or that's someone that's really with life-threatening asthma. But if you have some time and the patient is not quite responding, but you want to add an agent, ketamine is probably a reasonable option. I also think that ketamine not only provides bronchodilation, but for those asthmatics who are agitated because of the severity of their respiratory distress, the subdissociative dose of ketamine can really maybe help their compliance with things like non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, which I'm sure we'll talk about shortly. 
Yeah, that's actually a great transition. So Excellent. I've got a <laughs> severely agitated asthmatic who I'm going to give a little bit of ketamine to. Tell me about the role of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation for this population. Well, hopefully I, we're going to start with a patient who's not agitated because they're not going to, probably not going to tolerate the non-invasive ventilation. But as a modality for acute asthmatics, I would say non-invasive ventilation has grown substantially in the last 10 to 20 years. I don't remember using uh, BiPAP or CPAP in asthmatics during residency hardly at all. And now I would say we probably, for a moderate to severe asthmatic who is maybe responding somewhat to initial medications, but not quite getting there, non-invasive ventilation, if they tolerate it, I think is a great modality. It can decrease the work of breathing. It can provide some PEEP, which can improve alveoli recruitment. The in terms of the modalities, BiPAP is recommended over CPAP, so bi-level positive airway pressure, which gives you some inspiratory, increased inspiratory positive airway pressure, which can improve ventilation. There have been two recent meta-analyses that we reported on the paper, which really both concluded that there was low quality evidence to support its use. So again, not good data to support its use, but at least anecdotally for most of us, for a severe asthmatic as a modality to add to the other things that you're doing, most of us would probably, there's not a whole a big downside to using it. And in a lot of cases, it will provide some ventilation and improve ventilation and oxygenation that can buy you time to let all of the other medications you're giving, let them kick in and hopefully avoid an intubation. And there is some evidence out there that does support non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. There was a fairly large retrospective study of over 50,000 asthmatic patients who were admitted to the intensive care unit. And it did show that BiPAP or BPAP reduced the rate of intubation and in-hospital mortality. You know, I think there's anecdotal data, but then also some decent quality data that would suggest that, you know, doing this at least before intubation is probably beneficial. Good. Yeah, I was surprised to see that the, the evidence level was moderate in quality. I, I have found a at least in my own personal practice, a big benefit to non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, even in the asthmatics. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. The thing, though, is that there have been some studies that showed, like Brandon cites, there's that one study that showed significant improvement, and there were other well-done meta-analyses that showed very not very much benefit at all. So again, we practice based on evidence, but we also practice based on experience. If there isn't a downside and it can give some benefit, you know, we'll do it. We'll try it. Now, this is one of those therapies we talk about a severe asthmatic who's not responding to therapy. So in your department, you see this severe asthmatic, you're giving them the continuous NEBs, you've administered the steroids, perhaps you've given them MAG, maybe even a dose of Epi. What, what is your time frame for not responding before you're reaching for something like this? Or would you consider doing this early on if they look severe enough? I would say, I don't know if I can put a time on it. It really all depends on the patient. If that patient looks like they're crashing in front of you, you may be beyond non-invasive ventilation. If you feel like you look at that patient and you're just in the back of your mind, you're considering the trajectory, if you feel like you have some time, I would definitely try it. But it really all depends on the patient. Okay. I think we also have to use bi-level positive pressure ventilation correctly too. So one of the important things that Dr. Hackman had mentioned was how it, it can improve ventilation. And uh, one of the ways it does that is because it's got an inspiratory positive airway pressure and an expiratory pressure. And in order to really use BPAP 
And to get the most out of it, I think we need to know that sometimes increasing the difference between your IPAP and your EPAP can help improve ventilation. So if your patient is not improving on the standard settings you've put them on, increasing the difference, again, between your IPAP and your EPAP could be uh, beneficial to help, again, improve ventilation, which will help improve uh, their symptoms overall. So not everybody, 10 over 5 is not one size fits all, right? You may start at 10 over 5 on your BiPAP settings, but you're going to have to play with them and sometimes increase the IPAP in order to better ventilate the patient. Yeah, and that's a great transition to intubation. So if our patient is either beyond the point of non-invasive or has failed and we're contemplating intubation and mechanical ventilation, what kinds of things do we need to keep in mind for this patient population? I would say to start this discussion, I think my favorite quote in the whole paper of some Scott Weingart, where he says the best ventilatory strategy in the obstructive patient is to avoid intubation altogether. And that's, I think that's really underlines everything that we do with these asthmatics. We have all these different modalities. And if you're going to have to intubate a patient, you really want to think that you've really exhausted all other possibilities. Having said all that, when you have life-threatening asthma, you really have no choice. And so that's really, intubation is going to be your really your last chance to save this patient. This happens in a very small minority of asthmatics. What we cite in the paper is 1% to 4% of asthmatics, and 4% is probably high in my experience. It's probably a lot less than that. The biggest pitfall or risk of intubating an asthmatic patient is the risk of pulmonary barotrauma. There are other complications you can see, but that's really the main complication that we have to worry about. And Really, what you have to uh, worry about in a, an obstructive patient like an asthmatic is preventing breath stacking. The patient is, when they're breathing themselves, they're going to do a certain degree of breath stacking themselves, which is to say they're going to take another inhalation before they've fully exhaled. And what that does is that can lead to lung hyperinflation and eventually pulmonary barotrauma. So what, we have, what you have to do in a patient that you're unfortunately forced to intubate, an asthmatic, is... You have to keep an eye on lower, keeping the respiratory rate down, the tidal volume down, increasing the expiratory time so your inspiratory to expiratory ratio is going to go down what you would normally do on intubation to one to four to one to six. You're going to increase your flow rates to improve your oxygenation. And the number that you want to keep an eye on most closely is your plateau pressure. You want to keep that less than 30 because that's really what the lungs feel, not the peak pressure but the plateau pressure. And that's easy to uh, determine. Your respiratory therapist can help you determine that on your ventilator. Keep that number under 30. Keep your tidal volume and respiratory rate down and keep an eye on that. PEEP is something that you may need to use in order to properly oxygenate the patient, but you want to keep that as a minimum initially. Adjust that as needed in order to oxygenate, but you want to keep your PEEP down as well. And in the instance of breath stacking, where you're concerned about barotrauma, the best way of handling that is to detach the patient from the ventilator and actually physically press down on their chest. That'll usually allow a lot of that air that's been trapped inside out and improve your patient's respiratory status as well as their hemodynamic status. And then tell me about hypercapnia in these patients. So is there a target level we're looking at or something? Can we consider a higher level of PCO2 in these patients after they've been intubated? Yeah, I think that's extensively discussed in the literature that permit what we call permissive hypercapnia is perfectly acceptable in these patients. 
you know, like generally when we intubate a patient, you're always looking for that number 40 for your untitled CO2 or for your PaCO2. The, in, in asthmatics, it's not unusual for them to have carbon dioxide levels as high as 80, 90, 100. And that's okay because really that's a lot less dangerous than, than the danger of barotrauma. There's a really, really good paper that I recommend by Scott Weingart in Annals of Emergency Medicine 2016. We cited in a study, I bring it with me to work every day and keep it in my pocket or, or in my bag in case I, which is, gives you really good uh, numbers and parameters to keep in mind for both a long protective uh, strategy versus an obstructive strategy. Obstructive strategy, was, which is what you will use for asthmatics. Excellent. And there is also uh, a pretty remarkable table, uh, table eight, recommended initial ventilatory settings for patients with asthma. So if you are in this scenario and you don't Scott's article in your back pocket, uh, then this table might assist you to find your initial vent settings and hopefully guide you on where to go from there. And again, there are some ventilatory flow tracings on page 14 and some diagrams that will help explain the breath stacking we were talking about. So if you're not familiar with that phenomenon, I highly encourage you to go read it. This is a life-threatening scenario for your asthmatic patient, and there is potential to do some significant harm if you aren't familiar with how to manage them after intubation. At the very end of the paper, we talk about, or you talk about, some special populations. Uh, so we have touched on pediatrics somewhat when we talked about steroid use. Anything else special uh, about the pediatric patient we need to keep in mind? No, I think that the approach to treating pediatric patients is not very much different from treating adult patients. The literature is somewhat divergent, and we talk about that in the paper. But for the most part, you're going to treat them with the same modalities that you treat Good. adults. And then, again, always pregnancy rears its head whenever we're talking about life-threatening illnesses, and it is always a nightmare scenario for me. But I can't imagine having to treat a pregnant patient with status asthmaticus or severe asthma. People are always worried about medications and contraindications in pregnancy, but for the routine medications we're using or even all the ones we've talked about today, any of those contraindicated in pregnancy? Any concerns for using those in a pregnant patient? No. And, and I think the answer is a, to that is a firm no. I think one of the things that we try to do in this paper is to alleviate your concerns about treating pregnant patients. Pregnant asthmatics should be treated the same as any other adult asthmatic. Virtually all of the medications, the first, second, third line medications that we talk about are safe to use in pregnancy. What isn't safe in pregnancy is uncontrolled asthma. And the shame, I think, of our healthcare in this country, at least, is that many pregnant women, as well as their, their primary care doctors and their OBGYNs, shy away from using the standard medications for asthma for fear of harming their fetus. But in fact, uncontrolled asthma, as we discussed in the paper, are risks for many pregnancy complications, like pregnancy-induced hypertension, preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, low birth weight uh, infants, preterm birth. So really the recommendation is for pregnant women to continue to manage their asthma the same way they did prior to pregnancy. Fantastic. And then COVID-19, something we've all seen lots of, anything specific to the asthma patient who also happens to have COVID? Yeah, this was an eye-opener for us because the initial CDC guidelines, or at least the um, data that they had, 
for COVID-19 was that people with moderate to severe asthma may be at a higher risk for getting very sick from COVID-19. In fact, what the data from many different countries has shown is quite the opposite, that patients with a history of asthma, and particularly patients that are on chronic inhaled corticosteroids, had a lesser, a, a, a more benign course if they got COVID-19 than the general population. They were underrepresented in the admitted patients as well as the admitted to the ICU patients that uh, were admitted for uh, COVID-19. Why this occurred is not clear. One theory is that the chronic use of inhaled corticosteroids may downregulate the ACE2 receptor, which is thought to be a major entry point for the virus. Not clear whether that, in fact, is the cause, but it's been posited as a possible cause for that. But in any case, the data did show that, that COVID-19, that asthmatics that got COVID-19 had a definitely a more benign course. And quite honestly, personally, as an asthmatic myself, who've been on inhaled corticosteroids <laughs> for the last 30 years, um, I, I continue to use my, uh, my Advair every day religiously during this period. Nice. And it has prevented you from getting COVID? I have not gotten COVID. Knock All on right, wood. Knock on wood. Yes. You heard it here. An <laughs> N of one. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about some, uh, some controversies or, or I should say cutting edge therapies. There are now biologics available for asthmatics. Tell me about these medications and, and whether or not there's really a role for them in the ED. Really not a role for them in the ED per se. We're not going to start these medications and we're, we're probably not going to adjust these medications. The, uh, we did put a section in the paper about them just because uh, we feel that, that emergency physicians should be aware that these medications are out there. Biologics or monoclonal antibodies are indicated for severe uncontrolled asthmatics who have a particular type of asthma, the type 2 high variant or the type 2 high phenotype of asthma. These patients will be started on these biologics by their pulmonologists as outpatients. And we just wanted people to be aware that they exist. A patient comes in who says, oh, yeah, I take uh, omelizumab. You know, rather than us kind of like scratching our heads and trying to figure out what that is, I think it'd be useful for us to know that there are five FDA-approved um, biologics. The way they work is that they target particular points in the um, inflammatory cascade that's involved in the pathogenesis of asthma, and that they are really indicated for patients that have failed all other outside chronic treatments for asthma. So just be aware that they exist and patients may come in that with a history of being on them. Good. And then fractional exhaled nitric oxide. So I read this and thought nitrous oxide, but this is not actually nitrous oxide. This is nitric oxide. So we're not trying to sedate our severe asthmatic with some nitrous where we're looking at a, a potential marker for inflammation. Is that right? Yes, yes. It's fractional exhaled nitric oxide. And it's a relatively recent um, diagnostic modality. It's a direct and non-invasive marker of airway inflammation and uh, success of treatment. It has really been studied more in the outpatient uh, setting and found to be much more useful for, again, for evaluating patients in an out, outpatient or clinic setting. Not really has not been shown to be particularly useful um, in an emergency setting. Okay. And then Heliox, something that's been around for a while now, uh, is that still beneficial at all in ED management of patients? 
There's not a ton of evidence that supports the use of Heliox in the emergency department. And Heliox is also not always available in every ER. The idea though, is that it can increase laminar flow. And some studies have shown that it can decrease hospitalization rates and enhance bronchodilation. But I think more data is probably needed before it becomes part of our routine use. Yeah. And I think actually kind of the opposite. I think it's, I think it's something that was in vogue maybe 15, 20 years ago. And I, I think it's pretty much out of vogue now. I don't, I think that most emergency departments don't stock it and most emergency physicians don't use it. There was some data for it, but I think there was never great data to support its use. Yeah, my pediatric critical care colleagues on occasion will reach for this, but even they have told me that it has been limited by even the FiO2 that it could deliver. So if right. you're not familiar with Heliox, this is a mixture of helium and oxygen, often 70-30 or 80-20. But if your patient needs a significant amount of oxygen and has a low saturation level, then you know that may preclude use of this because you just can't get them enough FiO2 and the benefits of the laminar flow. You're just aren't there. All right, let's talk about high-flow nasal cannula. So we're using much more of this in the COVID era. Uh, is there a role for this for our asthmatic patients? So high-flow can provide higher flow rates for patients requiring large amounts of oxygen, but there's very little data that shows that it plays a role in the acute treatment of asthmatics. There was one small trial and it showed no difference in hospital stays or intubation rates but it did show improvement in vital signs for what it's worth. High-flow nasal cannula is also less likely to improve ventilation since unlike non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, there's no inspiratory pressure, but it can be considered in patients who aren't tolerating BPAP maybe, as long as physicians realize that mechanical ventilation might still be required. I would say that high-flow nasal cannula might be the most useful um, in order to provide apneic oxygenations while providers are preparing for intubation. So that's sort of where I see the role of high-flow. Brandon, you are the segue master. So that is a great segue into delayed sequence intubation. <laughs> Tell me, I've got my, my, my asthmatic patient and who is going to need to be intubated. We've got access to our RSI meds. Is there a role for perhaps a different approach uh, to intubating the patient? Yeah, absolutely. Especially in patients who are agitated or have altered mental status secondary to their hypoxia or hypercapnia. Delayed sequence intubation can be used or should be considered um, because it'll help preserve your oxygen reserves while preparing for the placement of mechanical ventilation. This is where ketamine comes into play again, you know, the medication that is favored by all ER doctors, but ketamine can be given and it will preserve airway reflexes. It will preserve their drive of breathing and their circulatory support while the patient is pre-oxygenated and while providers are preparing for intubation. One of the Weingart studies showed that the use of ketamine in DSI can actually improve oxygen saturations from 89% to 98%. And the difference in the percentages might be the difference in you successfully intubating someone versus unsuccessfully intubating someone. So it's something to definitely consider, especially in patients who are agitated and are difficult to pre-oxygenate. I really like the phrase in the paper where it describes delayed sequence intubation as the procedural sedation for oxygenation, right? Where your procedure is to oxygenate the patient and you're giving them ketamine 
in order to provide just enough sedation to improve the oxygenation as you prepare for the next step? Yeah, I think that the delayed sequence intubation using non-invasive ventilation plus ketamine, just it really makes perfect sense. There's admittedly not a lot of data for it. I think Dr. Weingart's paper is probably the biggest study, and that wasn't even primarily asthmatics. But when you think about it, it can provide, it can relieve some of the sort of patient's agitation. It can provide some bronchodilation. You're using non-invasive ventilation to improve oxygenation and ventilation. And then if, God forbid, if the patient needs to be intubated, you're already set up to do that, right? You've, you've already provided some of your induction agent. You've got the patient set up. You're hopefully pre-oxygenated the patient. And if you have to go the route of intubation, you've, you've already sort of like taken care of the first few steps. And hopefully you can turn the patient around and not have to intubate them. So I think it's a great modality. I would say lots and lots of practitioners out there are using it. And hopefully over time, we can create some more data to support its use. So at best, you are preventing intubation altogether. And at worst, you are adequately pre-oxygenating your patient before intubation. So it really is a win-win situation, I think. So that's an important point. You know, we call it delayed sequence intubation, but the bridge, this is the ketamine sedation bridge, may become the final destination. If it's completely successful, you may avoid intubating the patient. And so this may actually become a therapy in and of itself without moving forward to intubation if it's so successful that you manage to oxygenate the patient, relieve the distress, relieve the agitation, and now they begin responding to the non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. So it's not just a bridge, but may actually be the destination for someone. Yeah, absolutely. Correct. Okay, lastly for therapies, let's talk about ECMO or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. What is the role for this therapy in the severe asthmatic? So ECMO is still a, a really precious resource and it's not available at most medical centers, but I do think it's important for emergency physicians to at least be aware that it's a viable treatment in the most severe of cases. So there's been multiple studies that have shown improvement in oxygen requirements peak inspiratory pressures, and mean airway pressures, simply because you're really bypassing the lungs and the airway altogether. But it should be noted that obviously there are serious complications that can occur with ECMO, and we recommend a discussion with an intensive care specialist before cannulation or transfer to an ECMO receiving facility. That's really going to be for the sickest of the sick, yeah. right? Patients that you can't um, adequately ventilate and oxygenate even after they're intubated. Excellent. And then disposition. So who gets to go home? Who gets to be observed? How we make those decisions? Are there any tools that we can use to help guide us there? How does that work? Obviously, it's a clinical decision. It's, it's, I'm not sure that there's any one parameter. You want to see that the patient is breathing comfortably. They're oxygenating. Their mental status is good. I always give them what I call a road test in the emergency department. Once I'm done with the treatment, I'll get them up, take them off everything and just have them briskly walk around the emergency department to see that they're comfortable doing that. That's after observing them for a period of time. The majority of patients really can go home. The, the ones that are really sick, hypoxic, obviously intubated or on BiPAP, gonna have to be admitted upstairs to the hospital. We have a, a third group that we have developed probably in most emergency departments in the last five to 10 years, which is observation. And I think that's appropriate for a patient who is not entirely comfortable, not entirely out of the woods in terms of potential for relapse, 
but not necessarily sick enough to go upstairs. So we can keep them in the emergency department, give them nebulizer treatments, continued steroids, watch them, maybe keep them overnight and hopefully get them home the next day. So I think observation is a, a really good modality for that middle-level patient that doesn't really fall into the discharge versus admit category. Also, when dispositioning these patients, you want to make sure that they have access to all of the resources that they need so that they don't end up back in your emergency department just a few hours later. So making sure that you're providing them with proper discharge instructions. If there's an asthma educator, they should meet with them. One study showed that care packages and transportation vouchers can actually increase follow-up with their primary care doctors. Also, just reaching out to family members, seeing if you can arrange some sort of social support that can increase medication compliance and address other comorbidities. So that's really the best way of making sure your patient's dispositioned correctly and safely. Great. We also, um, in the paper, we provide some QR codes, like on page 18, that shows proper use of an inhaler and a spacer. Because really, asthma education is really, it's our job. That's what we do. We're going to discharge these patients. We're going to send them home. You want to make sure that they have the medications they need. They're using their inhaler properly and they have follow-up. So that's a good resource. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for taking the time to teach us about asthma. I really appreciate it. And that's a wrap. Thanks again to Dr. Hockman and Dr. Samwaru for teaching us so much about asthma. I sincerely hope you found it as information-filled and educational as I did. And don't forget, join us at ebmedicine.net for all the foam ed that you can handle, rapid reference notes, clinical pathways, and so much more information available for free on the website. And also the new urgent care education product if you're working in an urgent care center, the app on your Apple smartphone and coming soon to Android phones, so much more coming from EB Medicine. I just can't wait to share it all with you. Come join us at ebmedicine.net and let us know what you think. Until next time, I'm Sam Mishu. Be safe, everyone. <laughs>